Lord, we are so thankful that you have chosen to reveal your word to us with such vivid detail. And that in the, in the unfolding story here, Lord, we are brought to see your amazing sovereign hand at work in the lives of your people. And Lord, I ask this morning that as we humble ourselves before you and before your word, that you would mold us and shape us out of this passage in such a way, Lord, that we would see our lives afresh and we would see you in greater wonder and that you would use me as your messenger to simply reflect your truth, uh, to be that mouthpiece, Lord, for your text so that we, your people, can press on uh, to the things that you've called us to. So, Lord, uh, allow us, Lord, to sit before you and to feed, we ask in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I think you would probably agree with me that regardless of the side that you may be on, <coughs> no one likes a traitor. The idea of turning on your friends and your family, your people, your country, or even your God will turn the stomach um, of most people. And to many, it is the unpardonable sin. You betrayed us. And as you look through history, there are countless people that you can think of that are, I would say, notorious traitors. And I've listed four just to reflect the, the impact of what they've done and how their name has left a legacy throughout history. We who here in the States have as part of our history a man by the name of Benedict Arnold, who was an American who was fighting against the British, but in the course of the war turned on his American friends and began fighting for the British. And his name now has in our culture become synonymous with being a traitor. You go back to the, the times of, of Rome and the name Brutus comes to mind who was the close friend of Caesar. And we don't know if this is actually true. Shakespeare kind of plays it up a little bit. And when Brutus comes with the knife, uh, Caesar basically says to him, even you, Brutus, even, even the person that is my closest trusted friend is gonna betray me. And then I have to take you to England because that's part of my heritage. And there's a man there that is celebrated every year and his name is Guy Fawkes. And Guy Fawkes was a, a man who grew up in the slums. He was converted to Catholicism, went outside of England, fought for Spain uh, against the Dutch, came back to England and was part of a resistance group that wanted to blow up Parliament. And on the, the, the night before he was going to blow up Parliament, he was caught underneath Parliament with 36 barrels of gunpowder, and so every year, November 5th, um, the British will take a, uh, an image of Guy Fawkes, put him on a bonfire, and set him alight. Sounds like fun to me. And then they set off fireworks, saying, you know what, we're gonna, we're gonna celebrate your death by blowing things up in the air. It just doesn't quite connect, but anyway. But his name, Guy Fawkes, is synonymous with being a traitor. And then, of course, from the world of the New Testament, we, we have a man that we know who was a disciple of Jesus, who was loved by Jesus, who was given responsibility by Jesus, but for 30 pieces of silver, he betrayed Jesus. Now, as we come to the Old Testament, and in particular in this text, there is a man who fits the bill being a traitor. And his reputation is actually spoken highly of here in this passage, but what we find as we read the story that is really his, his loyalty is treason, treason against the one true king of Israel. That one true king of Israel is David. But when his treason is exposed, what does he do? He's really a foil of Judas, because as a traitor, just like Judas, he goes home knowing that he's going to be exposed, and he hangs himself. 
But in order for us to fully understand what's going on in this passage, I think it's helpful for us to go a little bit down memory lane for a little bit. And so join with me as we just review a little bit of what God has promised David, um, the man after God's own heart. Begin in 1 Samuel 28 and verse 17, and here's what the Lord says. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand, speaking here to Saul, and given it to your neighbor David. This is God tearing the kingdom away from Saul, giving it to David. That was 1 Samuel 28, 17. 2 Samuel 3, 18 says this, Now then bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, uh, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. This is God promising victory through David. We continue on. 2 Samuel 5, 2. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led, talking about David, who led and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, David, you shall uh, be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So the emphasis here is that God is promising to work his plan through David. Now, specifically, the key passage there is 2 Samuel 7, 12 and following. You have that there in your handout. Now, let's just read this through and notice the promises that are made. And as we read through this, just be reminded of the story that we've been studying here. When your days are fulfilled, verse 12, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house from my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And you can just see what we've been studying over the past number of weeks in 2 Samuel being fleshed out. This was prophetic just as much as it was a promise, and we're seeing the fulfillment of that. David right now in this context is under the disciplining hand of God. He is being chased by his son. Let's just back up a little bit. From this list of verses, we know that God raised up David to be his king. And we also know, and we've seen that through David, Jerusalem has been established, the Ark of the Covenant has been returned and set up in Jerusalem, and the borders of Israel have once again been restored. But we also know that David has sinned. He has sinned a great sin. Sin of adultery with Bathsheba and then the sin of the murder of Uriah to try and cover up that sin with Bathsheba. And the consequence, as we've seen, is this disciplining hand of God and the rod of men and the stripes of the son of men are heavy upon David. Two of his sons now are dead. He has a daughter who has been raped by one of his sons who is now dead. And another son, Absalom, is now revolting or starting a rebellion and setting himself up as king in Jerusalem while David is fleeing into the wilderness along with David's rabble but loyal followers. Now some of those followers have returned to Jerusalem. They've returned to Jerusalem at David's request and they've returned to infiltrate the ranks and be the vehicles to thwart Absalom's efforts. So now as we, as we look at this fast-paced narrative, we need to be reminded of what I'm now saying is the proposition of this passage. They need to, we need to be reminded that God's king and kingdom will prevail. In spite of treason, 
which we'll see. In spite of rebellion, in spite of the potential of vast armies, in spite of humiliation, right? God's king and his kingdom will prevail. And what he requires of his servants is a committed and active loyalty and fidelity to be loyal to him and to trust him. That's not easy to do when you've just been usurped. That's not easy to do when the army that you once had is no longer your army and you're running with a rabble group of people just with the stuff they could grab into the wilderness. It's not easy to do when you're being humiliated. And yet that is what God is calling his servants to do. And so this text is, is pressing us to ask some hard questions. First of all, about the plan of God. Is it possible for David to recover from this devastating setback? I mean, look at him as he's, as he's running off in the wilderness. How in the world is he going to get back to the place of being king? Secondly, how will God work out his plan in the face of so many enemies? It just seems like he's being surrounded. It seems like people have, have turned on him so much that there really isn't a possibility of coming back. That may be a little bit more personal question. Do you trust that God's plan is sure? See, God has promised David something, but the circumstances seem to betray what God has promised will actually take place. What about you? when life seems to start to fall apart a little bit? Do you start to fall apart because you're not confident that God says and what God says he's actually gonna do? Well, there's another aspect that I think we need to ask some questions, not just about the plan of God, but just relating to the people of God. Are you the kind of follower that can be trusted with your responsibilities as a citizen of the kingdom? David, remember, was king. God didn't change his title. Man has risen up against David. And there has been a division. Those who are loyal, those who are not. Are you the kind of person who, in the midst of, of difficulty, are you the kind of person who will show your loyalty to the king by virtue of your words, by virtue of your actions? And third, are you the kind of follower who in the face of discouragement in, in the present circumstances can press on with faith, trusting in the promises of God? And I want you to just kind of muse on those questions as we walk through this text together. And there's, there's some different layers going on here in this, in this passage, and I'll, I'll try and draw you through all of those layers, but let's first of all look at what I'm calling the danger of respected counsel, the danger of respected counsel. And as we work through it, I want you to notice the beautiful truth that God's providence is hidden. Now, the author of 2 Samuel gives us an aside note. It's always good when you're studying narrative sections like this to, to take note of what the author says to kind of fill in the gaps or to try and explain some things. Notice chapter 16 and verse 23. Here's what the narrator says. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. So this character Ahithophel is an important character because when he speaks, you listen. When he speaks, it's as if you're opening up the word of God and God is speaking to you. That's the kind of reputation, that's the kind of character that he has. And so let's just think about that. Ahithophel was a, a faithful advisor to King David, but he had abandoned his ranks by the side of David, and he joined with the rebellion, being led by Absalom, David's son. 
Now we're to note a couple of things. Ahithophel's wisdom and counsel was greatly respected, not only by David, but what does the passage say? Also by Absalom. So to consult Ahithophel was like, was just like saying, all right, God, what do you want me to do? And then it, it just seemed like his counsel was wise, was trusted, was loyal, and it was always going to be proved to be true. But as we think about what's going on here, we have to ask ourselves the question, would that still be the case when Absalom has abandoned God's anointed and gone with, or say when Ahithophel has abandoned God's anointed and God with his son Absalom. Would the same guarantee be true? Absalom may be stronger, Absalom may be younger, but he is not the one after God's own heart. It is David. And hear this, to be a traitor, enemy of David, is to be a traitorous enemy of God. And that's the seriousness of what we have going on here. You choose sides. Think very carefully about what you're doing, where your loyalties lie. His character. He's a traitor. Secondly, his counsel. His counsel. So now, Absalom turns to Ahithophel and he asks for advice, for, for his counsel, and he says, what is your counsel? What should we do? In other words, now that I'm in Jerusalem, what should we do? Now that David is running away, what should we do? And Ahithophel's answer comes in two parts. What is to be done in Jerusalem? What is to be done with David? And that really, those two questions answer two kind of large sections of scripture. So we're gonna look first of all at what is to be done in Jerusalem. And the counsel that Ahithophel gives is a pretty radical counsel. In order for the people to see that you are the new king in town, he says, you must violate David's concubines and make yourself a stench to David. Now it's worth noting that Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. And you have to wonder if there was kind of like a, a family grudge going on here by means of his disloyalty. So now Ahithophel counsels another rooftop incident but it smells more like revenge than wise counsel, doesn't it? What David has done in secret, Absalom will now do where? In public. And doesn't that sound a lot like 2 Samuel 12, verses 10, or yeah, 10 through 12. And it says this, or say 2 Samuel 12, verses 11 through 12. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. This is God speaking to David. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. I mean, this couldn't fall into that prophetic promise any clearer. What Absalom is telling the people is this, by virtue of having these sexual relationships with the concubines in a public way, that he was burning his bridges. He's saying, I'm not going to turn back. He's saying there is no hope of reconciliation with David. Remember that whole reconciliation period that was going on and was the talk of the town. He's saying this rebellion is truly on. Absalom was all in with this rebellion. And that, he was hoping, would galvanize his followers behind him. But isn't it amazing that it is Ahithophel's scheme to remove God's chosen king that fulfills God's previous word? 
man in his pride, man in his wisdom, wants to do harm, and yet God is at work through man's rebellion to accomplish his own purposes through man's sinful behavior. Or to put it differently, the hidden providence of God secures that God's purpose will take place. Ahithophel's act of treachery serves only to execute God's word. My friends, that is a powerful demonstration of how God is at work in the affairs of mankind. And mankind has no clue what's going on. Truly, the providence of God is hidden. But not only the question what should be done in Jerusalem, now the question is what should be done with David? And here's what Ahithophel says in answer to that question. He says, I will move on David tonight with 12,000 chosen men. I will pursue him while he is weary and discouraged and kill only him. Only he needs to die. I will bring all the people back as a bride comes home to her husband. I mean, just see the picture there. Only David needs to die so the people can be at peace. But I must act now. That's what he's saying. This is, this is actually wise counsel. This is good military advice. To take advantage of the opportunity was an excellent military strategy, a quick surprise attack, and get it all over and done with. Now think about it. David is discouraged. David is hungry. David has wandered off with a, a, a rabble of a people. You know, there's no real order. There's no real army. It just actually makes a lot of sense. It's just wives children, servants, anything they could grab. It's a slow-moving rabble of people. So this really makes sense. And honestly, if, if, <coughs> if David is dead, he's thinking, then the people will return to you, Absalom. They, they, they'll come, and they'll, they'll just be settled with it, and, and you'll be king. But then in verse 5, something strange happens. I mean, you think about this, this is really, really strange. Because in verse five, what do we read? Then Absalom said, <coughs> call Hushai the archite also. And let us hear what he has to say. What? Why would he call Hushai the archite? Now, on one level, this makes absolutely no sense. Why, having heard from Ahithophel, the one whose word, whose counsel was like the word of God, why would you then call in Hushai to give counsel? But on another level, it makes complete sense, for David has been praying. Just go back in your Bibles to chapter 15 and verse 31. David has been praying, <coughs> Lord, Please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. This is just all unfolding. This is all part of God's wisdom, part of God's providence that is hidden, but very much at work. Now let's think about Hushai's character. He's described as a friend of of David. He comes to David while David is, is leaving Jerusalem and he pledges himself as, as a loyal friend to David. <coughs> but David says, listen, thank you for your pledge of loyalty, but I need your help. And I need for you to go back to Jerusalem and I need for you to be a spy in the court of Absalom to inform on him and to me what Absalom's plans are. And so he's the one that shows up in chapter 16, just before Ahithophel gives his first piece of advice in advising Absalom to take the concubines and to rape them in public. And he enters the palace and says to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. And he's playing the part. And when questioned by Absalom about his loyalty to David, Hushai says this, for, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. 
And again, whom shall I serve? Should it not be his son? As I've served your father, I will serve you. And Absalom is taken in by it. I mean, he just believes what Hushai is saying. He is playing the part. And surprisingly, as I said, Hushai is, is sold this bill of goods, so to speak. But even more surprisingly now is that after Ahithophel gives his advice, that Absalom calls on Hushai to give his counsel. I mean, you can't, you can't write this yourself. Truly, the hidden providence of God is at work, paving the way for those loyal to his king, giving the words to say in support of the true king, undermining the plans of his enemies. Now let's think a little bit about Hushai's counsel. <coughs> I want you to notice, first of all, that he is tactful. He doesn't put down Ahithophel's <coughs> reputation. <coughs> Just this particular counsel. Notice what he says. Then Hushai said to Absalom, this time the counsel that Ahithophel gives is not good. I mean, he's tactful. He's just going in there saying, yeah, you're just, he's a total idiot. You need to listen to what I have to say. No, he's like, hey, listen, I totally respect Ahithophel, but this time, this is what I would do. It would be different. So he's tactful. Secondly, he's logical, reminding Absalom of David's greater skills as a tried and true warrior. Let's read that, verse eight. You know that your father and his men are mighty men and that they are, they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He's reminding him, hey, listen, you know, you know who's the expert of hiding out in the wilderness? It's your dad. And he's got his mighty men. That may not be a huge amount of men, but they're mighty men enough so he's logical, he's cautious, and he really plays on the, 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 the whims and the tides that can happen during the, during the course of war. As soon as some of the people follow the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom, ah! right? Then even the valiant man whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear, for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant men. And so he's, he's playing on him, right? And so not only is he tactful, logical, cautious, he's also clever. He appeals to Absalom's vanity. Now if you notice back, <coughs> what Ahithophel says is this, I will go into battle, I will find David, I will kill him, I will bring the people back to Jerusalem. Hushai speaks about Absalom, though, being the center of attention. Ahithophel was, in his counsel, the one who was the center of attention. But Hushai says in verse 11, but my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to who? You. From Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for a multitude, that you go to battle in person. So he's, he's playing on Absalom's vanity right now. He's very, very clever, but he's also bold. Why kill only David, he says? Why not kill all who are loyal to him? This is where I disagree with the Hithavel. Don't just, don't just kill David. Kill everyone who is loyal to David. You say, Hushai, just hold back, buddy, okay? You're loyal friends. You're putting them on the line here. No. Hushai is, 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 is playing a part here. And he's trying to do his best to kill time for David so that David and his people can get out of town and get to safety. His last piece of advice, really, as you think about it, if you are... Absalom who's trying to take rulership here, he's thinking to himself, you know what, it would be better if those who potentially are loyal to David were gone. Because then I would only have people that are loyal to me. 
I wouldn't have some people that were questionable. All those loyal to David would be eradicated. David would be gone. They would be gone. And we can build a whole new world order out of my followers. See, Hushai is very, very smart. Now, to be honest, Hushai's advice, when it comes down to it, is really not sound military advice because he's saying, hey, listen, leave David alone, let him go, and then you know, raise up an army. <coughs> and of course, that means giving David the opportunity to raise up his army and to get his fortifications in place. But Hushai is simply working his charm. He's sounding convincing. His logic and graphic imagery works wonders on Absalom and the rest of the men of Israel who conclude, look at verse 14, and Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Now you don't see you know, Hushai going, woo hoo hoo yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think at this point in time he's dismissed. And although that statement may be made, he really doesn't know what Absalom's going to do. Now you might say, wow, Hushai, what a servant of God, what a, what a man of God. And we certainly have to <laughs> give credit to Hushai for his faithfulness, <coughs> for his words, for his loyalty to the king. <coughs> but the narrator wants to be sure that we're not duped by the skills of man here, only that we're left in wonder of the providence of God. Look at verse, oh, the last part there of, of verse 14. For the Lord, what? Had ordained the defeat, or to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm on Absalom. Yeah, Hushai was doing his part, but who's working behind the scenes through Hushai's skillfulness? Whose providence is in control of this situation? It's the God of the universe, it's David's God. It's God, Yahweh, the, the God of Israel. Now, David didn't see that. Hushai didn't feel it. But we are given a secret by the narrator to teach us and to encourage us that God's providence may be hidden, but it is at work as he works his will through both his servants and his enemies. God's sovereignty is not meant to give us philosophical problems, but to provide spiritual comfort. Just think about this. You're in a difficult spot, and you're saying, God, you know, I'm praying that you would work your will in this situation. You don't see anything happening, but because you believe that God is sovereign and he is working his providence, you are confident that your words are not <coughs> excuse me, falling on deaf ears and that God has not abandoned you. He is very much in your story, but he's hidden. So his providence is, is hidden. We may not see it, but that doesn't mean that God isn't at work even as we face opposition. So in the face of opposition, will you and I be loyal to our King Jesus? It's <coughs> a very important question to ask. Will we be bold enough to speak for him when called upon to do so? And when things turn sour, are we willing to trust in his promises that he is at work even in our humiliation and suffering. <clears throat> and in David's case, his humiliation and suffering was the result of his sin. Now, friends, there's a boldness that is lacking among American Christians today. The church in America is producing a soft and timid Christian who is more convinced that all they need to simply do is to reflect their, the gospel by their exemplary life. They've bought into the idea that has been taught, and it really over the past, I think, 10, 15 years, I've heard this quite a bit. They, they bought into the idea that, that, that they need to preach the gospel at all times and when, when necessary, use words. 
That quote is often attributed to Francis of Assisi. Um, there's no record that he actually said that. But still, whether he said it or not is not the point. The statement has been thrown out there and has been used to say, listen, it's more important that people just see your deeds. And as we read scripture, it's like, yes, people need to see your deeds, but the gospel cannot be communicated unless it's spoken. It must be said. Now, in the context of Gateway, I hope you've noticed this, but every time someone gives up to do the announcements, what's the first thing that comes out of their mouth? We want you to know that the reason we exist here at Gateway Bible Church is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we try and explain it maybe in a different, fresh way each time. But we don't want to be afraid. We don't want to kind of assume. We want people to know that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ communicated by words that has brought us to this place to be a church. And you can't do that just by simply, well, I'm going to go out and cut my grass and smile while I'm doing it. And people are going to see the gospel by how straight my lines are, or whatever it might be, right? You've got to put words there that communicate this is the gospel. So there's a softness. And friends, I, I have to regularly ask myself the question, have I been affected by the softness so prevalent in our Christian culture? And I find myself praying this way. Lord, give me boldness. Give me tenderness. Give me gentleness. Give me clarity as I open my mouth and I speak for you. Whether that be from a place like this or whether this be across the fence or in the grocery store, wherever it might be, that as the opportunity arises to share the truth of Christ, that I will do it. I will do it carefully, I'll do it compassionately, but I'll do it clearly, and that I'll do it boldly. My friends, that is the danger of respectful counsel. And, and just a little side note here. Just because someone has been an example in the Christian community for years does not mean that everything that comes out of their mouth is truth. And that can even come out in a political climate. We need to always go back to the truth of God's word to find out whether or not what is being said, the counsel that is being given, is actually loyal to Christ because the word of God reveals it to be that, case, that way. And, and we've probably known of of men or even women who are leaders in the Christian community who have kind of changed their tune, so to speak. And you're left to wonder, it's like, what, 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 what? what am I listening to right now? And sadly, many times they'll kind of go off track and they're being disloyal, but people will follow them. Now, we've looked at the danger of respected counsel. We've looked at the hiddenness of God's providence. Now let's look at what I'm calling the risk, the risk of loyal resistance. And where we'll see not only that God's providence is hidden, but God's providence is exciting. Let me explain what I'm talking about. We've just been at a summit meeting where Ahithophel has given counsel and Hushai has responded with counsel and it appears that Absalom will be embracing Hushai's counsel but things might change and we don't really know exactly what's going on and Hushai doesn't know what's going on and so what he needs to do is he needs to get the news out. And so in order to get the news out, he has to, <coughs> he has to find the priests who then will find in particular, two priests, a man by the name of Jonathan, <coughs> another man by the name of Ahimaaz, and they are ultimately going to wait at a place called Enrogel for the specific details. And the specific details are this. Hey, listen, here's the counsel that Ahithophel gave Absalom, and here's the counsel that I gave Absalom. I'm not sure which it's going to be, but if I were you, I would make sure you get across the Jordan and that you get to safety as quickly as you can pass that along. So they get the information, and quickly, they, they run out of town, and they get to um, the, the, the town, Baharam, 
And while they're there, I should say, while they're waiting, they're seen by one of Absalom's servants. He goes to tell Absalom. Absalom turns around and sends some of his servants. See, this is all, this is kind of like a spy thriller going on here. People are running through town and hiding in the darkness and getting here and there. And when they get to this village, what happens? They know these guys are after them. And this woman (coughs) says, why don't you get down into my well? And they get down into this well, and she covers this well up so nicely that when Absalom's servants come, they don't even notice that it's there. It's just all part of the fabric of what's going on. I love her answer. <coughs> I love her answer when they ask the question, have you seen these men? Do you know where they are? And she says, they have gone over the brook of water. This is kind of like a true untruth. These guys are down in a brook of water, right? And yet, she's saying they've gone over a brook of water. It may be a play on words, but it's kind of humorous in one sense, okay? But at the same time, this is, this is messy stuff. These are the spies that have to get out of town. The servants leave. They don't find uh, these two priests there. The priests get out of, the, <clears throat> out of the, um, the well. They go off into the wilderness, and they find David there, and when they find David, this is what they say. We're in verse 21 now. Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. And David arose, and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had crossed over the Jordan. Now, I've just shared with you just really quickly these, these dramatic events. Uh, this is no small thing. This is, this is spy thriller stuff. This is exciting stuff going on in Jerusalem and out of Jerusalem and, and just seeing God at work through all of this. This is exciting providence. <coughs> and I can mention, Hushai was, was not privy to the, the final decision of Absalom, but he needed to get out either that there was going to be a surprise attack by Ahithophel and his men or there's going to be some kind of a massive onslaught <clears throat> by um, Absalom coming and coming pretty soon. And so we, the readers, however, can sit back in awe at really how exciting God's providence is. And, and I, just, I just want to remind you that serving God comes with its own riskiness, <clears throat> but it also comes with its own excitement. Now you say, well, wait a second. Um, but when it's all said and done, and you're looking back and connecting all the dots to what's going on here, you certainly are saying this is exciting provision. Now, if you want to know what I'm talking about, just go on a missions trip with me. Let me explain what I'm saying there. On my first ever missions trip to Costa Rica, my wife and I were picked up at the airport and on the journey from the airport, about 20 minutes or so into the journey, we're going through a residential area. Our missionary hosts are there. We're driving through. We're talking about, about life in Costa Rica. And the back of the, the van door opens up, and our luggage pops out. But we don't realize it right away. And by the time we turn around and look back, it's being circled by the natives, so to speak, right? They're, you know, it's a residential community, and the people are there, and the kids are riding their bikes around. We're like, ah, is our stuff going to be okay? We get back there. We pick it up. And, of course, the missionary host is very embarrassed and whatnot, and we start driving up into the mountains toward his house, and the um, <clears throat> radiator overheats, starts spraying this way and that way. And, of course, one of the beautiful things about Costa Rica is just the natural waterfalls that are all over the place. And so he's able to pull over to kind of a, a, a turn in the road going up the mountains, and there's a natural waterfall. And he wants to go over to, to get some water. He has like a, like a jug container, and he has, as he's walking over to get the water, he trips, and he breaks his right big toe, okay? We finally get the water in the radiator, but as we're going home, the thing dies. We end up having to get a taxi and pick us up and blah, 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 right? Exciting providence. This is the way it's going to be, all right? And it paved the way for us actually to kind of get to know each other and settle because going through trials like that has a tendency to do that to people, right? Then, then my wife and I, our first time to Bolivia, this was many, many years ago, 
um, when we were there, as we were getting ready to come back, we were delayed in our return back. And the reason for our delay is that there was a volcano that decided to erupt in Ecuador, and so we had to wait for all the, the air to clear before we could actually fly, okay? And it's like, well, we weren't personally affected, but, you know, we came home a little bit late, but still kind of a dramatic thing, right? And then I go to Russia, and this is my, my first time um, in, in Russia, and um, we're in a, and actually it wasn't my first time in Russia, it was probably my, my third time in Russia. Um, but uh, I find myself on a, on a 13-hour journey between uh, Kirov, Chepetsk, and Ufa, two places you don't know anything about, um, uh, out in the middle of Siberia, and it's storming, and it's raining, and I'm in like, four huge suitcases in this little car, and it breaks down. And I'm sitting in the back seat, and I'm just saying, okay, Lord, what are you going to do? And make a long story short, God created possible people to go back to and they ended up fixing the lotta and we got to our destination. God took care of it all, but it was just kind of one of those times where you just say, okay, God, you are at work here and, and you are, I mean, what could I do? I had a credit card in my, in my pocket. It could do nothing. I had a cell phone with me. It meant nothing. The only thing I could do is say, okay, Lord, I'm in your hands, right? Which is actually a really good thing for me to go through. And then, our gateway's first reconnaissance trip to Bolivia. Here we are, excited to go down Bolivia, and, and we're delayed in San Francisco, which meant that we ended up spending three days in Miami, waiting, wanting to get there. And yet God used that still, just even in us, and to prepare us. And This is just all part of God's exciting, changing providence. Then on another trip to Bolivia, uh, I was in Samaipata, and I slipped and fell on the, on the tile, and I think I broke a rib or something like that, and came home all sore and in anguish and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and then, uh, I think maybe in the same trip, it may have been a different one, I can't remember. I think Albert was there, and Johnny was there, and we went to Samaipata, and of course, that's when we had eight earthquakes. And we endured those earthquakes, and you have to understand, they were like, we, we never get earthquakes here, but then they had earthquakes, because we were there, why? Because I was on a missions trip, that's why. Okay, so needless to say, uh, me, JD, and Yulia are going to Ukraine next month, and we need your prayers. Um, but see, this is all the excitement of God's providence at work, because God uses all of those things to bring about his purposes. And looking back, <coughs> we can always be confident that God's providence is guided by his sovereign hand and he is at work, even in the details. Thank you. So all those struggles and setbacks that we would experience, the trials and frustrations were part of God's exciting providence, just being played out in the context of ministry there. Now, God's providence may, be, may seem more um, exciting on a missions trip, but it's no less exciting when you look at how God works his plan in the lives of those around us. His providence is certainly hidden, and it certainly is exciting, and just because you can't see it doesn't mean that it's not happening, just as much as it would be happening on something you're a little bit more charged for. And because we believe that God is at work moving his providence along, we can eagerly anticipate the affairs of our lives to be then moved on by the providence of God and to see him at work. We can go into our days asking the question, I wonder how God is gonna use me today. You ask yourself that question. I mean, you know he's at work in your life. You know he's seeking to accomplish in the grand scheme of events something through your life to bring about his glory. What's he gonna do? How's he gonna do it? <laughs> I wonder what challenge I will face that, that will be an opportunity to testify for him, either by my example verbally or by my testimony to his goodness. Now just think of it this way, a couple of examples. You might have a job that takes you into people's homes, people you've never met before. Well, if you've never met them before, guess what? It's an opportunity to meet someone new. 
It's an opportunity to get to know someone. It's an opportunity to create a conversation. It's an opportunity, if the open door arises, to testify of your walk with God just by the natural course of affairs of life in the context of what it is that you might be doing. So each day you're saying, God, work your plan. I want to be a part of your plan. If you open up a door of opportunity to share the gospel, make it very clear to me, I want to do that. Or maybe you're the kind of person where people are always coming to you in the course of work. And and who knows who God might bring to you? Who knows who might be having a bad day or who may be struggling or who may be going through some kind of a difficulty. And you just happen to be there in the course of their day as a person they can come to. And by your kindness, by your words of comfort, whatever it might be, it can be so mundane. But if you're going into that saying, God, will you be, you know, will you allow me to be a mirror to who you are? Will you, will you allow me to, to view these people as pawns in your hand that you simply don't want to work through me to reach? See, perspective is everything here, isn't it? The twists and turns going on in your life may not be as dramatic as being hidden in a well by a sympathizing woman It may be mundane in your eyes, but God is still at work in the mundane. But it really isn't mundane if God is at work. It's exciting, maybe hidden, but it's still exciting. And and quite frankly, we, we, we celebrate it more when we look back and we're able to connect the dots. That's the risk of lower resistance. It, it pushes us to see God's providence is exciting. And then this last section here, the surprise of human response. Uh, here we want to see that God's providence is unpredictable. We're first of all surprised by the trade or Ahithophel's end. Let's read verse 23. And when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, He saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. I mean, this is surprising. The narrator is just kind of giving you a very, you know, detailed, matter-of-fact account. This is how it all ended for him. I mean, there's no hysteria. There's no sensationalism. This is vintage Ahithophel, calculated, efficient, methodical, he goes home, he sets his fares in order, he hangs himself, and he's buried with his father. There it is. Now why does Ahithophel take his life? What could his motive be? Well, he knows what he's done. He knows the writing is on the wall. He knows that his treachery has been exposed, and so he's gone from a trusted advisor who speaks as if he's speaking the word of God to being a traitor, enemy of David, and as such, an enemy of God. This man who lifted up his hand against the Lord anointed, and his end, friends, is a sign of what will happen to all the enemies of the king and of the kingdom. You cannot attack the kingdom of God without sooner or later being crushed by the power of God. The Ahithophels and Adolfs of this world, the the Hamans and Himmlers of this world, the Sennacheribs and the Stalins of this world, the Caiaphases and the, the Camarouges of this world, the Jezebels and the Neros of this world, all of them will rot and perish in the junkyard of history. Why? Because God stands guard over his kingdom and over its subjects. So we're surprised, but we should be encouraged. Not only surprised by Ahithophel, but we are surprised also by these loyal servants that show up. David arrives in Mahanaim and Absalom encamps his army in Gilead, we're told. Then these three relatively unknown servants arrive to serve David and the people. Well, question, who are these loyalists? Show by. 
He's an Ammonite from Rabbah. He's a pagan. Machir, he's one who had been sympathetic of Saul's household. So at one time, he was an enemy of David. Barzillai, a very wealthy man in his 80s. All right, well, what do these loyalists bring? Just, they brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils. They're going to come and they're going to make a soup. Honey, curds, and sheep, and cheese for the herd, and David and the people with him to eat. Not only bring the food, they bring the things to eat the food or, you know, how to cook the food. And why are they bringing these things? What does it, what does it tell us? For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Well, who would have known? <laughs> oh, here's David off in the wilderness. What am I going to do? How am I going to care for these people? How am I going to feed them? How are they going to find nourishment? God, what are, what are you going to be doing in this situation? And then all of a sudden, these three guys come. A pagan, a former antagonizer, and a rich elderly gentleman with a bunch of food for David and his people. Listen, God's providence is unpredictable. (laughs) You're going through a trial, you're going through a difficult, you're suffering in some kind of a way, and you're like, God, what, how are you going to do this? What, why, what is the way and this is going to happen? All of a sudden, out of nowhere comes someone. You're like, where do they come from? And God is using them to minister to you. That's providence. So unpredictable. This is truly amazing. This is truly unexpected. This is risky loyalty. You've got to think about this. The battle has not yet been fought. The, the issue of kingship has not been settled. These people, by virtue of their coming, are aligning themselves with David. Their loyalty is on display by virtue of their actions. And we've just been s- surprised by vintage Ahithophel, but friends, what we see here and what amazes us is vintage God. This is how God works. His providence is hidden. His providence is exciting. His providence is unpredictable. He is a God who answers the questions, where am I going to get my next meal from? And where am I going to get something to cook the soup in? And you have to wonder if this is the moment that David had in mind when he pens the following sentence in Psalm 23. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. (laughs) It's exactly what's going on here. Out of nowhere, God says, we're going to have a feast. My friends, let's bring this back to where we began. We began by, by looking at the fact that God's king and kingdom will prevail based on his promises, in spite of treason, in spite of rebellion, vast armies, humiliation, and what he requires of his servants is a committed and active loyalty and fidelity. And can I just remind you of something, that what is driving the providence of God in David's life is what we saw in the promise that he gave to David, that the steadfast love of God would continue. It is at the root of his promise to David. It is behind David's discipline. It is behind David's eventual restoration. God's said love, his steadfast love for David is not relinquished when David sinned. It continues on, even through his discipline, even through his trial, even through his suffering. And that steadfast love of God is an expression of God's loyalty to us, loyalty to David, but also it talks about us And if we look ahead from God, or from David, who was God's anointed, to the king of kings, Jesus himself, who is the anointed, we see that Jesus, the Messiah, is loyal to us by virtue of the fact that he left 
heaven to come to this earth, and while on this earth, he pursued the journey to the cross where he was the sacrifice once for all, where he was the substitute for you and me. Friends, that is loyalty. That is commitment to those whom he has chosen. John 3.16, we all know it very well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is loyalty. That is steadfast love. And there's three things I want to leave you with this morning as you consider this passage. I want to challenge you to first of all lean in. Lean in to the providence of God. See God for who he is. See, in his, see him in all his attributes, but in particular, when you think about the providence of God, I, I want you to kind of lean into that and rest in it. There's, a, there's an old hymn that says this, what a fellowship, what a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness, what a peace is mine, leaning on the everlasting arms. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure, from all alarms. What have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms. I have blessed peace with my Lord so near. Leaning on the everlasting arms. Are we leaning into the Lord Jesus Christ who says, listen, I've got this. I've got this. Lean into him. Secondly, lean in. Loyal up. Let me ask you a question. Are you a loyal servant to your king? Are you willing to stand boldly for your king? To defend his integrity, to defend his reputation, to speak when his name is maligned. When he's looking for a loyal servant, can he count on you? See, what God wants us to do while he is carrying out his providence is twofold. We've, we've mentioned it already in the proposition to be loyal to him and to trust him. Trust that he knows what is best. This is both an issue of character and an issue of behavior. This is not just what you believe, in other words, what you sign off, say, I believe these things to be true, but it's also reflected in your behavior that reflects someone who was loyal to that king that you believe to be the king of the universe. And in our text, we see loyal people doing all sorts of different things, don't we? Some speak up, some clearly a, a carry messages, some hide servants, some provide food, some cook the food. In other words, there's all sorts of different ways your loyalty can be expressed as part of the body of Christ, as part of the people of God. But are you loyal to him? Thirdly, look ahead. Look ahead. I have no idea what God has in store for your life. So many of the people in our text today had their lives turned upside down, rushed out of a city with only what they could grab, and they're going through extremely exhausting and emotional and difficult trial where many questions still need to be answered, but they looked ahead with loyalty and trust. God's providence is at work he works unwittingly through the enemies of the kingdom, but he also works purposefully through those who are citizens of his kingdom. Remember, his providence is hidden, it's exciting, and it's unpredictable. So look ahead with excitement, with anticipation, with joy. Yes, he is at work even through you. Now there's a final note that I want to I just want to stress here a little bit because I think when I ask the question, are you a loyal citizen, you might be saying to yourself, you know what, no I'm not. I mean just like Ahithophel was a counterpart to, to Judas who, who, who was disloyal to the true king and he ends up going in his final conclusion and kills himself, you might 
connect with that because you may be someone who has walked away from the Lord Jesus Christ. You might be someone who may be even present today, but in your heart and your behavior and your activities and in your worldview, you've, you've abandoned him. Friends, you don't, you don't have to follow their example because God is a God who forgives those who come to him and say, I was wrong. What I did violated your trust in me. Would you please forgive me of my sin? I want to be restored to fellowship with you. I want to be forgiven. And Jesus always listens to the prayer of a heart of confession and to the prayer of a heart of repentance. This is God, please forgive me. You were right, I was wrong. I want to be restored to you. Would you please do that? Now, Lord, we are so thankful that we have you. And in this passage, we have seen you throughout the storyline. And not just because you're there, but because the narrator reminds us that you're there, but Lord, we are reminded that you are always there, working out your will, working out your providence. And Lord, as you do that, you call on us to be loyal to you, to trust you. And Lord, I ask that today, that as we consider this, that we would be asking those kinds of questions. What kind of God do we have? And can he take us from this situation that seems hopeless and bring us to a place of what in our eyes would be normalcy or rightness. And then, Lord, are we the kind of people who have been loyal or disloyal? Lord, help us to to humble ourselves before you and to realize, Lord, that you are a great, loving God who is desiring for our hearts to cry out to you. Lord, restore us. We have sinned against you. We have been disloyal. May we be reconciled to you, Lord. We ask this in your name. Amen.